The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Welcome to this edition of Stockhead Wildcatter. Today, we're delighted once again to host John Campbell, who's the editor and author of the Oil & Gas Weekly. We spoke with John on Remembrance Day last year, 11th of November, and things were very different, John, weren't they, at that stage? They were exceedingly different, Peter. We had a Brent uh, oil price of $62 a barrel. The uh, COVID-19 virus was probably just weaseling away there in uh, Wuhan somewhere and no one knew about it. And since then, uh, we're now in a $33 a barrel oil market. And as we know, we've got uh, over 156,000 cases of the virus globally and it's expanding in Europe, even though uh, I think in the uh, Hubei, Hubei province uh, around uh, Wuhan, cases are, are pretty much... Uh, on the downtrend there, uh, but we're certainly seeing it in uh, North America and in Europe. Yes, the uh, the next major crisis, of course, is what's going to happen in, in the United States, the world's largest economy. Will that close down in the way that Italy has done and, and the measures that they've taken in the United States over the weekend, including the Federal Reserve's decision to cut rates down to almost zero, is, uh, is really quite frightening. I think uh, we're now actually learning a little bit from the way, even though the Chinese initially tried to sort of hose it all down and not talk about it, uh, they eventually made some very strong measures to close down whole uh, communities and provinces. Like At one stage, about 400 million people were uh, at home. Uh, and now we're seeing in, in Italy uh, and in other parts of Europe, Uh, borders closing, uh, regions closing, schools closing. And here in Australia today, we've had the same sort of thing with uh, restrictions on travel and so forth. So I think we're probably six weeks ahead of the curve, uh, but that's not impressing the stock market, is it, John? No, it's not at all. And so where, uh, from your point of view, John, do you see uh, the oil market going? We've had this massive pullback. We were facing a situation where I guess the market was seen to be pretty much in balance, maybe one, one and a half million barrels of extra supply that could have come out of OPEC. We've now had OPEC plus Russia uh, sort of duking up, if you like, and we've got a meeting on the 18th of this month in just uh, two days' time to, uh, to determine where they go. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? The uh, the supply situation, it goes from bad to worse. And if the Saudis carry through with their threat to increase production, should the current agreement, production cut agreement, uh, not be extended, uh, doesn't bid too well for uh, for oil prices come April. Uh, I, you, you would think that, that in Moscow and Riyadh, they, they must be talking uh, – because it, these sorts of prices and, and even lower prices are no good for anybody. Uh, it will really disrupt the industry. Yeah, I think we'll have to wait and see on the 18th, but you're right. The average uh, consumption for oil during the calendar year 1919 was just a touch over 100 million barrels a day. And you'd have to think with the reduction in airline travel, the reduction in other 
travel with people going to and from work and driving their cars. Uh, you know, I, people, are, it's a big number. I mean, we're going to see a demand for, I think, of in the order of 5 million barrels a day, which is sort of unprecedented. Yes, well... Before all this started, the the production cuts, I think, were OPEC generally 1.5 million barrels, and then the Saudis kicked in another 600,000 barrels. So the the total amount of oil that was sidelined was something like 2 million. And then at that meeting in Vienna, I understand the Saudis were asking for another 1.5 million to 2 million barrels to be taken off the market. So in uh, in in Riyadh, they're thinking that the oversupply is uh, is to the extent of four million barrels, and that's not taking into account, as you say, the uh, the the loss in demand that we face this coming year. So it really is a huge amount of oil that sits on the sidelines. Yeah, I think even a two million barrel cut now would not be enough to assuage the market's worries because we don't know what the demands. But you know, when people are staying at home. Uh, when airlines are not flying, uh, there's a hell of a lot uh, less oil going to be consumed in the uh, March and through the June quarters, uh, and we'll have to wait and see whether by July or August. Uh, certainly the factories are starting to start up again in China and there will be uh, more consumption there, but uh, it's still, I think, too early to say. I think what we can say and what we would agree, John, is that at $33 a barrel for Brent, and sort of around $30 a barrel for West Texas, um, the global supply is actually being threatened over the uh, medium to longer term. Yes, it, it's interesting because the supply might be threatened, but the supply, the potential supply will still be there. So as prices rise and more supply will come onto the market, it's, it's not as though there's not enough oil to, to come onto the market when prices rise. There is. Um, and when people say, for example, that the U.S. shale industry will be uh, crushed finally, uh, yes, some companies may go to the wall. In fact, a lot of companies may go to the wall, probably because they've had a pretty poor business strategy of just drill, baby, drill. But the oil in the ground will stay there. And uh, once prices start to rise again, then some smarter companies than the ones that are there today may come in and make some money. Yeah, the... Uh even if they stop drilling and just uh, sit there on the, the current barrels, uh, that production will continue. But, of course, it will decline month after month, year after year. And the the only thing, thing that's built oil uh, production in the United States to whatever is 13.1 or just, uh, just under 13.1 million barrels a day is this uh, ongoing drilling activity in the light-tight oil sector, which we now know to have been... Um, almost entirely uh, cash flow negative from an industry point of view. Yes, uh, I, I think some companies have actually been making money that have cut costs and haven't borrowed to, to drill wells. And at, at the moment, there are probably a number of companies that are, that are hedged production, um, usually a requirement of their, their loans. Yeah. Um, so that protects them a little bit from, from the lower prices. But... Um, Yes, you're right. It's uh, it, it's amazing how there is an emphasis on production numbers, and you get very little information about what what they mean in terms of actual cash flow and 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 profitability. 
Well, the um, companies always report they're making profits, and that's fair enough. And they report an operating cash flow surplus. But but when you look at their investment spending year after year, they spend more money. Like BHP, when they spent twenty billion dollars to get into the industry, they then yep. poured another ten billion net after all of their uh, the cash that they were dragging out of the ground. I was still spending another ten million billion more, and then they sold it all for ten billion, having sort of basically washed 20 billion down the toilet. So John, uh, when we spoke uh, late last year, you were, I think, quite right in predicting that the oil price in the short to medium term would be 40 to $60 a barrel. Uh, no one was expecting uh, coronavirus and that's what's pushed it below that $40 a level. Um, and But certainly you know, if we see uh, a recovery in, in China and then subsequent recoveries towards the end of this year in, in Europe, uh, demand for the product, as you say, will increase, and that oil has not gone away. It's still in the ground, and people will be uh, will be uh, developing it. But I'd say that in the short term, uh, projects, many projects, will be put on the back burner. Projects offshore, uh, Guyana, off in the Gulf of Mexico. I think uh, Woodside would be scratching its head and thinking very strongly about projects. Projects like uh, Carnarvon and Santos's Dorado project, those ones I think will be slowed down by the uh, impact of of basically lower prices, but also w- with the lower prices comes uh, a weaker access to uh, to capital markets. Oh, exactly. Funding will, becomes more of an issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I, it, it'd be a brave man to forecast where the oil price is going to be in six months from here. It depends on so many factors that um, you just can't be sure about. Um, but I think... Uh, a lot of it obviously depends on whether OPEC can get its act to, back together. And trying to understand what it is that motivated the Saudis to actually threaten, well, to assault oil prices, which is what they've done. Uh, and, um, you know, they can produce oil at, at $30 a barrel and make some money, but it's it's not enough revenue to... to um, Keep the kingdom offset, going. Keep the kingdom going, exactly. And... Uh, you know, we saw some reports a couple of weeks ago of, of Prince Salman uh, having to fend off some of his uh, princes who were a little bit less than happy with his performance, uh, and that could raise such issues again. And if there's instability in Saudi Arabia, well, we, we won't really won't know what that will mean for the oil industry. I think that's pretty much a given, John. That's uh, you've, you've hit it on the head. We're going to see further uh, troubles there. But it's, I mean, the underlying thing for me is that um, oil generally, if you don't drill, the uh, uh, the average decline rate is something in the order of five to six percent per annum. So if you're producing a hundred million barrels a day, if you don't drill or do anything and just suck from the, your existing infrastructure, by the end of the year, you'll be producing sort of 95 million barrels and, it, and another year down the track, you'll be producing sort of 92 million barrels a day. So that there's a certain amount of spending that just goes in the ground just to keep uh, production steady. And then on top of that, you need additional production if you're going to, as we have seen over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, oil demand continues to rise by about one to one and a half million barrels of oil a day every year. So uh, to me, it's that uh, additional spending to develop new fields. And if you go down the track and all of a sudden there aren't the pipeline of new projects coming on to deliver in excess of a a million uh, barrels of oil a day per annum, then you're certainly going to uh, be in a situation where there will be a shortage of supply. 
Yes, that's uh, that, that's definitely a possibility. Of course, the other thing is we don't know what the world is going to look like at the other side of the coronavirus. I mean, people may decide that working from home is fun. Uh, yep. There could be a whole new aspect, a whole new attitude towards work and, and how society operates. And in the meantime, of course, renewable energy is, is forging ahead and battery technology is making uh, progressions in leaps and bounds. So... Oil industry is facing real challenges, not just issues of of, um, of price as uh, forced on it by the Saudis and the Russians. Yeah, I think the Saudis uh, are looking at that. Of course, they floated off um, a small portion of Saudi Aramco, which was effectively a tax on wealthy Saudis to, who were really obliged yes. to take up shares yeah. um, as a way of getting more money into the the public purse in Saudi Arabia because even at $60, $70 a barrel, they don't make enough surplus cash, even though, as you say, their costs of production might be $10 or $11 a barrel. They don't make enough surplus to keep everything running because the whole kingdom uh, runs on on oil revenue. Um, And I think they're probably taking a view that um, renewable energy as it comes through is going to really impact them over the longer term and they need to sell as much oil today as they can because in 20 years' time they mightn't be able to do that. No, exactly. So, John, um, the uh, the outlook for Australian producers a bit uh, grim. Um, we've seen some fairly positive uh, announcements coming out of uh, the likes of Woodside and uh, Carnarvon this morning about the long-term prospects for their businesses. But... Um, with the, uh, I see the spot gas price in Australia down around $5 Australian a gigajoule and the uh, net back of for LNG is now around the $4, $5 as well. So we've seen domestic gas prices come from the sort of $10 to $12 Australian a gigajoule and the spot price now uh, back at around that 4 and $5 a gigajoule. Um, so I guess we can thank these activities for a reduced cost of energy, and that's going to impact on uh, people's profitability, uh, certainly manufacturing industry. Yes, certainly. Yes, I mean, the manufacturing industry obviously welcomes the uh, the, the change in prices, though I, I suspect a lot of them are still under uh, pro- contracts negotiated at higher prices some time ago, but at least when they're renewed, uh, they can look forward to, to lower prices. It does mean that... Um, some of those juniors in the Galilee Basin, for example, um, and the smaller ones in the in the Cooper that have small tenements are, are going to make it, find it very hard to 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 make a, a go of their their operations, their projects. Yeah, and the the Australian listed uh, US companies like uh, uh, Helios and uh, Australis and Empire Energy, basically debt driven. Certainly, the last two. Uh, uh, will be in dire trouble uh, at the current uh, at the current oil price. Um, you know, Helios trying to develop on the sort of western margin of the uh, Eagleford Shale uh, yep. on the Mexican border uh, in a very remote area, unlike other areas in Eagleford Shale where you're usually about 200 metres from a pipeline. These people yeah. are right in the middle of a desert. Yes, no, exactly. I could never understand why this Helios had a, a market cap that it did, huge uh, valuations. I think something to do with the shareholder registry. Yes, there were a lot of Singapore interests, I think, involved. Yeah. 
um, an energy world, of course, which really makes money uh, from generating electricity. They've been trying to get LNG projects up in uh, the Philippines and so forth. Uh, I think a lot of uh, uh, chickens will come home to roost in the smaller end of the market. Indeed. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of companies out there with cash, like uh, Carnarvon yes. um, and uh, Buru, which is sitting on cash, but really at a an oil price of sort of $54 Australian a barrel, uh, even, you know, boosted by an Australian dollar, which is back down towards 62 US cents. Uh, they'd have to really, I think last time the oil price was back at this level, they decided to just shut in the Ngani oil field. They thought it wasn't worth their while. I, I thought I saw this morning that, that Tapas was selling at about US $41 at the moment, which was a, quite a significant premium to, to Brent, but um, I, I may be wrong. Yeah, they might uh, they might wait until the next shipment and see whether the oil price, how it stabilises. And uh, I mean, there is a lot hanging. If, if after the 18th, as you'd expect, logically, uh, Russia and OPEC come to an agreement, to limit uh, output, uh, we may see some stabilisation and a, a move back up over forty dollars uh, for Brent as well. Yes, which would should see a little bit of a rebound in Woodside and Santos and oil search, which really have been savaged over the last few days. Yeah, it's hard to see how the high cost LNG producers, especially in uh, Gladstone, uh, would actually make money. I mean, at the moment, of course, the LNG that they're selling reflects the price that was apparent in sort of December of last year. But by the time we get to June or July of this year, the LNG uh, contract prices will be reflecting uh, $33, $34 US a barrel. And, uh, you know, with with an LNG price of around uh, $4 US a gigajoule, uh, that's going to be very difficult for people to make money. Yes, I... I in, in in looking at the East Coast market and the Gladstone uh, LNG facilities, a lot of people don't seem to understand that the, the cheaper prices in the United States are from shale gas. We don't have any shale gas in, in the East Coast markets of, of, of Australia. It's all conventional gas out of the Cooper and, and Bass Strait and coal seam gas, which is much more expensive to produce than, than the shale gas that the uh, American producers are buying to to yeah. convert to LNG. It's produced as a byproduct in the United mm. States. In, in in many cases, that's right. But even if you look at the way the US uh, Gulf State LNG projects are working, um, they pay Henry Harbour, I think, plus a 30 or 50 cent premium. Yeah. And then it probably costs them a dollar a gigajoule to convert it. And then it probably costs them another dollar fifty a gigajoule to get it um Depends whether they're selling it into Europe or into Asia, somewhere between mm. eighty cents and maybe as much as two dollars to get those uh, cargos into Asia. So, yeah. if you add all those numbers up, and there's no profit margin in that, there's no allowance for the capital cost uh, depreciation. So they they really, I, I can't see how those all those LNG projects in the Gulf of Mexico are going to stay afloat at, if the oil price stays where it is and the, and the LNG prices are reflected. Yes, I don't know what percentage of their capex is borrowed funds. I guess a pretty substantial amount of it, and I would think they wouldn't have got that money unless they had sales contracts already in place at fixed prices, which guaranteed the the lenders uh, uh, some return on their on their funds. But it's uh, a question of when those contracts, initial contracts, run out, and uh, they have to start bargaining at a much lower price level. That you have to look at returns on capital. 
Yeah, indeed. Well, I think also it's a we've had this uh, discussion about Australia's oil reserves or oil stockpiles, a strategic reserve of oil, and now would be really an excellent time for the government to stump up the cost of, of building uh, the facilities and to buy oil while ever it's so cheap uh, to, yeah. to build up a sort of 90-day uh, supply. Do what the Americans are doing and adding to their strategic reserve. They are. They're putting an order for another yeah. 77 million barrels. And I think the other thing that's going to be interesting to see uh, through the year is how the environment, uh, the, the numbers at, on carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and so forth, with uh, such a big reduction in um, economic activity, uh, clear skies in China for the first time in, in decades. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that, uh, you know, air, airplanes not flying so much, even uh, you know, we, we saw during the three days when um, airlines were grounded in the United States after 9-11, yeah. uh, we saw a clearing of the atmosphere and so forth. So when those numbers are in, it's going to be interesting to see and I think a bit of a wake-up call uh, for the introduction of uh, more renewable energy as we go forward. Yes, that's true, and, and, and a greater appreciation of the value of electric vehicles. Indeed, uh, provided the electricity comes from... Uh, non-fossil fuels uh, sources. Yes. yes so, John, indeed. are there any uh, companies or particular bargains at, at this point, or are you still a bit uh, gun shy when we're looking out there for for opportunities? If you're taking a, a longer term view than the next, you know, couple of weeks. Um, I'm I'm still gun shy to be quite honest. I, I I did mention Beach Energy in in the latest issue of the Oil and Gas Weekly because of its diversified um, asset portfolio. I think it's repaid most of the debt it used to buy those assets. Yeah, a lot of cash um, in the balance sheet. Yeah, it's it's a pretty well run company, and uh, um, they have like like all its peers been pretty much savaged. Um, amongst the juniors, well, the the producers that are, are debt free and have hedged production like Tap Oil are interesting, but but Tap never gets much market attention, yeah. uh, even though it's a very well run company. I think it's fifty percent owned by Singaporean and uh, and Thai interests, so that may be uh, a disincentive to to get involved for Australian investors. But um, the thing to to look at is companies that have that have not borrowed money to drill wells, but borrowed money to develop already discovered deposits like Byron Energy, for example, in the GOM. Uh, I think that's that's a very well-run company, but they produce a lot of gas with the oil and the gas is next to useless. So mm. it, it, it's a bit a bit hard to find some, some bargains at the, at, the bar- at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, it's going to uh, be a long, a long twelve months, I think, for most in the market, and um, I think people will be sharpening their pencils. I know Woodside said they stress test their projects down to fifty dollars a barrel. Well, the oil price is well below fifty dollars a barrel today. That's right. and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them, despite the chest beating and bravado, um, basically putting back the whole uh, Scarborough uh, project and. Uh, and you know, just developing, trying to reduce their costs and and focus on staying alive until uh, until the markets are a little bit more friendly. Uh, they they they're wanting to sell twenty five percent of the Scarborough project, but in this market, everyone will be like you, John. They'll be gun shy and and not willing to step up to the plate. Yeah, does that mean that um, the Perth Basin discoveries now have a better chance of finding uh, a way to market? 
potentially. I mean, they're low cost, they're high delivery, um, they're so large. Pipeline, they're, pipelines are in pr- place, yep, they can reverse yep. the flow, presumably on the… Yep, the molecules the- can go, and the pipeline's just a big cylindrical storage tank at the end of the day, you know, with yep. inlets and outlets. Um, yep. So, yeah, that, that's very much a uh, potential. I think um, on the bright side, and you've sort of touched on it, is that when talking about beach, is that over the next um, six months, certainly in the second half of this year, I think we will see mergers and acquisition activity. Uh, companies like uh, Strike and uh, Warrego, um, others like Carnarvon might feel, you know, Carnarvon uh, price, you know, peaked out at 62 cents. It's currently around 15 uh, they might feel the warm breath of a uh, of a an embrace coming from a larger producer. I think, and, and I think yes, that's indeed, going to keep the yes, going. yeah, no, that that is certainly the case. Uh, at these prices, buying Carnarvon would be be almost a steal. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done the numbers, but if you look at the uh, you know the two p uh, contingent resources uh, that they have, and then you sort of wave a magic wand over their prospective targets, uh, the market cap per barrel of oil must be extraordinarily low. Um, yes. It's my, you, you might well say, well, that oil is not worth anything at $33 a barrel, but as we've discussed, I don't think the oil price is going to stay at $33 for, no. for you know a long period of time. If we go out into 21, I mean, I, I like you, think probably – an oil price around $60 a barrel is, is enough to keep the uh, the industry um, moving forward. Yes, um, but we'll we'll take a while to get back to that level, I, I suspect. I think you're right. Now, I think we've used up our allocated time, John, so thank you once again uh, for coming in uh, to give us your insight, especially on those US assets, and uh, we'll look forward to catching up again once again later in the year. Enjoyed talking to you, Peter. Thanks very much. Appreciate it.